our reading today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have a certainty concerning the things you have been taught. May God bless his word. We're going to be spending the next significant amount of time in the, in the gospel of Luke, and I'm going to be doing some introduction to it this morning. In fact, let me just kind of start. If you're newer to the church, let me say two things. Today's message is going to be a little bit different than what you'd normally experience on a Sunday morning in the sense that I'm going to be introducing uh, this gospel, and so we're going to be looking at some things and, and uh, that, I don't know, just a little bit of a different way than a normal sermon might be. And then um, secondly, if you are newer to the church, you've been around, we like preaching through books of the Bible. That's kind of uh, what God has led us to do. So we just got done with the book of Ephesians uh, a few weeks ago, and now we're picking up the gospel of Luke. And uh, by the time it's all said and done, uh, if you have an actual physical Bible, your book or your Bible is going to flip open to Luke every time uh, you come to study it like it did with Ephesians. So with all that said, here's how I want to begin uh, this morning. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody that maybe you didn't know them as well as you thought you did? Um, you know, there's, there's different ways of thinking about that. Uh, there are, uh, well, you know, the baseball season is in full swing right now, right? And that's pun fully intended, by the way. Uh, baseball season is in full swing. And there were uh, two players on the Boston Red Sox, these two guys up here, uh, that were teammates for a long time. 11 seasons when it was all said and done. Uh, Dustin Pedroa there on uh, the left, and David Ortiz is there on the right. Uh, these guys played uh, together, as I said, for 11 seasons. Now, if you don't know anything about baseball, let me just tell you some things that are going to matter for the story that I'm about to share with you. Um, a baseball season uh, comprises 162 games. Did you know that? So it's a long season, 162 games. If you are an everyday player like these two guys, um, you can anticipate that in, in a given game, you're going to come up to bat three to four, even five times a game. 162 games, batting three to four times a game. And in the major leagues, before you come up to bat, the announcer always announces that you're coming to the plate. So now batting number blah, 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 you know, Dustin Pedroa or, or David Ortiz. So, so this is important. This is going to make sense in just a minute, okay? You're like, great, you're giving me facts about baseball. I thought we were studying Luke. We are, trust me, we're going to get there. The story is told by Dustin about his teammate, David Ortiz, that after they had been playing together on the same team for somewhere between seven or eight seasons, he's not 100% sure, something happened. David and Dustin, um, they batted right next to each other in the order. Dustin would bat first and then David would follow him. So that means that they would often be on the on-deck circle getting ready to bat together. And then when Dustin went up to bat, the announcer would say, now batting, Dustin Pedroa, and David would be right there in the batter's box waiting. Well, one game, about seven seasons in, the pitcher was warming up. He threw a pitch. It hit the dirt, deflected off the catcher, and the ball rolled towards where David and Dustin were standing. And the catcher gets up, walks over to go get the ball, and he sees Dustin, and he says, 
Hey, Dustin, how are you doing? He's like, I'm doing great. Good to see you. And he picks up the ball, the catcher, and he begins to walk back. Now, David Ortiz was standing right there, and he glares at the catcher as he walks away. And he looks at Dustin, and he says, what did he call you? And he said, he said hey, Dustin, how are you doing? He's like, why did he call you that? He said, David, because that's my name. He said, your name's Dustin? And he looked at him and he said, David, we've played seven seasons together. You didn't know that my name was Dustin? And he, and he said, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I just always called you Pee-wee. And because and, and, that was his, his nickname. And he said, David, do you really believe that my parents named me Pee-wee, that that's my actual name? And, and so he continued throughout the relationship to rib him about this. But the thing that gets me about the story is, listen, I mean, I can, for, I can get maybe not knowing someone's first name, except for the fact that over 4,000 times, David Ortiz stood in the batter's box and heard Dustin's name announced in the entire stadium. Like, how can you miss something as obvious as that? And it, and it begs the question, well, how well did he actually know him? right? Now, they actually are close friends, and they, and they do know one another. But it struck me, this story, when I heard it for the first time, because I thought to myself, wow, you can be around somebody as much as they used to around them and think that you know somebody when in reality, you don't even know something as basic as their first name. You know, we believe that when someone calls themselves a Christian, that name Christian literally means a Christ follower. So to say you're a Christian is to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And we believe that the God's word teaches that, that if you have been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ, that you are called to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is what we're supposed to be about as, as Christians. But here's, what, here's what's so shocking to me. By every major statistic, people who call themselves Christians in America, when they survey them on some of the basic facts of who Jesus is, what he actually taught, and what he actually did, more and more and more what we're discovering is people who claim to be Christ followers don't really know him. Even people like us who can go to church, I wonder how well do we actually know Jesus? Not just what people have told us about Jesus, but how do, well do we actually know what he said about himself, what others actually said about him, what he actually did and what his teaching meant? Like if we are called as a church to go and make disciples of Jesus and to live as disciples of Jesus, is, if we are to do something as basic as Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The question is, do we know what Jesus commanded? Do we know what he taught? And so it's in light of that that the Lord has led us as a church into this new season where we're going to spend the next extended season of time on Sunday mornings going through the Gospel of Luke. And the reason why we're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke is because if we really want to know Jesus, if we not just know about him, but really, really know him, there are four places in the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we have this record of who Jesus is and what it was that he actually accomplished, what it is that he actually taught. 
And as we're going to see, the reason why we're going to Luke is that it's ultimately the most comprehensive. It's the most thorough of the Gospels. It doesn't mean that it's better than the others. It's just that the others have a different purpose in what they're trying to communicate. And so we're going to come, church. We're going to come to Luke. Today, we're going to set the context by looking specifically at the prologue of this book, the very beginning introduction, so that we can spend time as a church saying when it's all said and done, we have come to know and understand who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished. So with kind of that as the background, are are you ready to learn and grow? Are you ready to go on this journey? Because it's going to be a journey. I want you then to join me. Open to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read what's known here as the prologue, what's known as the introduction to this gospel. It begins in verse 1 with these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." What I've just read for you is what's known as the prologue to the Gospel of Luke. It's this introduction, and in it we're going we're gonna to see that the, the very purpose of this letter is being communicated, but before we, we get there, we've got to take a little bit of a step back. God's Word says that all Scripture that we hold in our hands is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word says that God's word is God's word. It's been inspired by him. But when we come to a a book like Luke or Ephesians, we don't believe that these books just simply dropped out of heaven, were found in a field, and somebody picked it up and said, this is the word of God. No, we believe, as the scriptures teach, that these books were written in a specific time and place in history. They have human authors, but those authors were inspired by God to write what it was that God desired us to know as his people. So we have confidence in this. But as we see here in verse 3, there is a human author who wrote and compiled what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke. Do you see it right there in verse 3? It says, it seemed good to me to write. And the question that we want to ask ourselves is, who's the me of verse 3? Who's the me of verse 3? We we know that God is ultimately the author of this book, but who is the earthly author? Who's Who's the human author? Well, This me is identified in verse 3, but you'd say to yourself, well, Dave, the me of verse 3, my Bible says it's the gospel according to Luke. Does your Bible say that? (laughs) Like, well, of course, Luke wrote this gospel. My, My Bible says it. Well, here's the interesting thing. The name Luke is never mentioned in the entirety of the gospel of Luke. Did you know that? You can look through the entirety of the gospel of Luke, and Luke, who is assumed to be the author of this book, is never mentioned. So then why do we say that? Why do we say that Luke is the author of this this book? Well, I want to give you two reasons why people have said throughout church history that Luke is the author of, of this book. The very first reason I want to give you is the fact that the early church itself considered Luke the author of this book. The early church said, yeah, this book was in fact written by Luke, the companion of Paul, Luke who is identified as a physician in Paul's, Paul's writing. Yeah, he's the author of this book. You know, when you go to church history and, and you look at what early church fathers said about 
the biblical account, you find people like Justin Martyr. I'm going to dive into history here for a moment, but you're going to see it's significant. Justin Martyr lived between 100 AD and 160 AD. Um, He was one of the early church fathers. And Justin Martyr, in his writings that we have record of, he quotes from Luke's gospel. As he's just writing and giving commentary to the early church, Justin Martyr quotes from Luke's gospel. We all know, and there's absolute evidence, that he lived between AD 100 and AD 160. Now, why is this important, church? Why is it important to see that Justin Martyr is quoting from the gospel of Luke? Well, here's why it's really important. You have people that will come and say, secular individuals who come and say, you know the gospel accounts, those, you know your Bible that you have here? The stories that we have about Jesus and Luke and Matthew and Mark and John, like these were all written hundreds of years after the life of Jesus Christ. They, they, were, they were compiled by people later on who were trying to just, you know, reaffirm the authority of the church and those kind of things. The gospels were written much, much later. Here's the problem with that. How is it that a guy like Justin Martyr can be quoting from the gospel of Luke less than 100 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ if the book was written hundreds of years later? Are you tracking with me? And so when you read the Gospel of Luke, you're reading something that you know was written close to the time of the life of Jesus. Justin Martyr is coming and saying, yeah, no, it was written by someone that was close to Jesus. Now, Justin Martyr, he doesn't come and he doesn't say that Luke was the author. He just quotes the Gospel. But one of his pupils, a man named Tatian, he comes shortly after Justin Martyr. He had learned from Justin Martyr. And he actually says... So now we're in just around 280. We have, we have his pupil coming and saying, no, this book was actually written by, by Luke. So early church fathers, early church writers, they say, no, Luke was actually the one who wrote this book. And in fact, between the years 200 and 300, you, you have every early church father affirming virtually every single one of affirming that Luke was the one who wrote this gospel. You even have one of the heretics of the early church himself even saying that Luke wrote. So you have have both the Orthodox and the heretics both all agreeing, which is a rare thing, on who wrote this book. So the early church says it, but there's another reason why we believe it was written by Luke. And that's because we have the evidence in the New Testament. The evidence of the New Testament points to Luke actually being the author of of this book. Something that... I think some of you may know, maybe others don't know, is that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are a two-volume set. Did you know that? The Gospel of Luke and then the Book of Acts are a two-volume set. The man who wrote Luke is also the man who wrote Acts. When you go to the Book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, you discover that it's addressed to the same person as the book of Luke is addressed to this person named Theophilus. Look at Acts 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, anybody want to guess what the first book was? Oh, let's try saying it all together now. What was the first book? Luke, there we go, okay. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Acts is written as a follow-up to the Gospel of Luke. Here's why that's important, church. It's because there are things that begin in the book of Acts, things that Luke draws attention to in the book of Acts, 
or I'm sorry, in the book of Luke, that are ultimately fulfilled in the book of Acts. So it's really important that you almost like read these books together because that's how they were intended to be, to be read. But still, just like in the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts doesn't say that Luke was the author. While he references himself as the writer of the book, his name is never mentioned in Acts, just like it's never mentioned in Luke. So again, how do we know that Luke was the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts? Well, all right, stay with me for a minute. In Acts chapter 16, something happens. The first part of Acts, the author of Acts, says these people did this, these people did that, they did this, they did that. But when you come to Acts 16, the language changes. Instead of the person who wrote this book viewing things as having happened to other people, he starts talking about we did this and and we did that and, and we went with Paul. As Paul went here, we did this thing. So from Acts 16 on, The author of the book is no longer just a historian recording things that had happened. He's recording things that he himself participated in. And in the book of Acts, you see that the author records all of the people who traveled with Paul, all the companions that he had on all of his journeys. And one of the interesting things within the Bible is because it's in harmony, is that when Paul wrote his letters, he would reference the companions and the people who traveled with him. And when you look at the book of people who traveled with Paul in the book of Acts, and you look at the people who Paul says traveled with him, all those lists match up. But there's one person that Paul references as a companion that Acts doesn't mention as a companion. Anybody want to guess who that was? Luke, good job, you're following with me. So it makes logical conclusion that Luke admits himself here, but Paul acknowledges him as his companion that was with him while these things were were happening. So the early church identifies it as coming from from Luke. The New Testament evidence shows that it's coming from Luke. But what do we know about this man? Like, why spend some, some time, like, wanting to affirm that he's the author? One is because we want to ground this book in history, not in fiction. But also, too, because from the beginning of this book till the end, the only time that there's any even reference to Luke is here in the beginning. After this, he fades from view. But just as you would read any other work, church, we benefit from knowing about the person who wrote this. Because when you know about them, it helps to inform some of the things that we see that God inspired him to emphasize. You know, there are only three passages in the entire New Testament where Luke is named. Three passages. You see Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon verse 24. He's only mentioned three times, yet this man wrote a quarter, one-fourth of the New Testament. He wrote more of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to see what, why did God use this man? Who was he? What, what was he about? And when you, when you look at the New Testament, you look at these three verses, while there's only three references to him, you learn some very profound things about the man who wrote the book that we're going to spend so much time studying. And the first of the things that you learn about him is that Luke was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. You know what I mean when I say Gentile? That means he was a non-Jew. He was like, I have to assume, the majority of us here. He didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. He wasn't somebody who was probably familiar with the practices of the Jewish faith. He would have learned these things. His very name, Luke, is the Greek word Lukas. And, and so it's Greek in its origin. When you read the gospel itself, 
you discover that the Greek that Luke uses, all scholars say this is, a, this is a type of Greek that would indicate that the individual was well acquainted with the Greek language and was very educated in Greek, even philosophy and history because of the word choices that he uses and the structure of his sentences, the grammar, all of those things. The person that we're gonna be hearing this gospel account from is somebody that was like us, I don't know many people in our church family who grew up in Jewish households. And so sometimes when you read of the stories of Jesus, there's things that Jesus does and says that are intended to communicate to a Jewish audience because that's the context in which Jesus lived. One of the beautiful things about Luke's gospel is because that he himself is a Gentile, he puts himself in our shoes. And so he does some things that we're gonna learn in a little bit that help make what Jesus says and does more understandable to us. But there's a really clear reason why we understand that he was a, a Gentile, not a Jew. Because in Colossians chapter 4, we discover Paul says this. In Colossians 4.4, 4, it says this. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, when he says that Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, in the verses right before this, Paul had just given a list of all of his Jewish companions. But when you come to verse 14... He now breaks away and he introduces Luke, indicating that Luke wasn't considered by Paul to be one of the Jewish companions, but that in fact he is a Gentile. And not only is he a Gentile, look at what it says about him. It says that he wasn't just simply a Gentile, he was also a physician. Did you see that? He's a Gentile, but he's also a physician. Now people have made a big deal out of Luke being a physician. I wanna be careful how much we, we say or assume that meant. See, in today's culture, when we know that somebody's a doctor, we understand that they went through an extensive training period. They spent a lot of time in higher education. There's an overall respect for people that are in the medical profession and who serve as doctors. Okay, that was not the case in Paul's day. Are, are you with me? That was not the case in Luke's day. Physicians weren't highly looked at. There were kind of two classes of, of physicians. We're going to assume that, that Luke fell into the better class, but, we, but in general, they weren't viewed very highly because, man, to be a doctor back in those days, to be a physician, it was a lot of guesswork. They didn't know the things that we know today, so some of their practices are quite crazy. In, in fact, out of the seven times that reference is made in the Gospels to physicians, only once is it a positive reference. In fact, check this out. This is really fascinating. There was a story that's told in a few of the Gospels, including Luke's, where there was a woman who had been bleeding for years and years and years. Are you familiar with this story? And she couldn't get the bleeding to stop. And in, and in the Gospels, it says that she paid physicians to try and help her, but none could help her. Now, that little caveat about paying physicians, yet none being able to help her, the other Gospels reference it, but Luke doesn't. <laughs> Are you tracking with me? Same story. The one editorial note about the physicians not being able to help, he leaves out. Isn't that fascinating? We don't know. I don't know why, but, but that's, listen, they weren't viewed all that highly. But there were physicians who did show care and compassion, who weren't just in it for, for the money. And I have to believe that Luke was one of those who wasn't just in it for the money, but somebody who actually cared about his patients. And I say that because of what we see in the text. Notice that he calls Luke the beloved physician. 
the beloved physician. <laughs> you don't just call somebody a physician. He calls him the beloved physician. It meant that he was respected by those that he traveled with and that ultimately Paul cared deeply about him. And the reason why I think Paul cared deeply about him, church, is this. It's because Luke was faithful and loyal. Luke was faithful and loyal. The apostle Paul, who, law, who Luke spent a lot of time traveling with, had a lot of physical ailments. He had a lot of physical ailments. The fact that he could have somebody who would travel with him, who knew some medicine and would try and help him and care for them, um, speaks volumes of about the kind of person that, that Luke was. But he was so faithful. He went on all these missionary journeys with Paul. In fact, Paul would often spend time in prison. One time when they were in Israel in Caesarea Maritima, he was, Paul was in prison for two years. And we know that Luke was there and he stayed nearby. And prison back then is not like prison today. They didn't give you three square meals a day. You didn't get to go and exercise in the yard. In fact, you could only be cared for when you were in prison if someone brought you your food, if someone provided for you your, your needs. And so Luke we know because he was with him, was one of those people who would come and go and who was there to help Paul. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4.11, we read this. This is so powerful. He says, Luke alone is with me. In the passage before, he talks about other people having left him. And he says, despite everybody else leaving, Luke is still here. Luke was a man who was faithful and who was loyal. Makes sense that he would have those attributes as a follower of Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? I mean, when you know who Christ is and what he's done for you and the care that he has, you know, the fact that greater love has no man than this and he laid down his life for his friend. Luke knew Jesus Christ as the one who had saved him and laid his life down for him and so he stuck with Paul. He stayed with Paul. He was a loyal and faithful individual. It wasn't too long ago, maybe about three weeks ago, I was doing a, a funeral service here at the church it was somebody that doesn't attend our, our church, um, but was a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and this man who had passed away, he had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And for those of you who know anything about that disease, you know that over time, you lose your ability to, to function. Um, you can't use your limbs. Your body slowly just shuts down. And so this, this man, he was never married. And so here he comes. He was a musician, actually. And so at the end of his life, he lost the ability to play the guitar, what he was known for and one, one of the things that he taught. And, and, and so he had the ability to be all alone. His parents lived out of the area. They would come down and visit. But at the funeral, I, I heard something that just really stood out to me. It was really a picture of kind of what I think Luke was like for Paul. This man had friends who, as they watched their friend begin to, to waste away, made a decision that they never wanted him to be alone. And so they put in a schedule that they would come, one of them would come, sometimes multiple of them would come every single day just to sit with him and be with him. They'd read things, they'd watch things, they'd listen to music together. And at this man's funeral, I heard friend after friend, not boasting about what they did, but just talked about how much they cared for their friend, that they were just by his side continually. I thought about that story a lot as I was thinking about Luke here and the kind of faithful and loyal person he was to Paul. What an example he is to us of, of the love of Christ actually in the flesh. And then I think there's a reason for that, and that's ultimately found in Philemon 24. You see, there's something that's often overlooked about Luke, something that 
we don't think about all that often. He's known as a historian, he's known as a physician, he's known as an author, but in Philemon 24 we read this. Paul's writing, he says, and so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow, what church? Workers or laborers. What was the work? What was the labor that the apostle Paul was engaged in? He was proclaiming and bringing the gospel to the lost. That was his work. That's what he did. He was engaged in shepherding churches, proclaiming the gospel to the lost, helping Christians to grow in the faith. And notice, the thing that we often don't think about the person who wrote this book is that Paul identifies him as a fellow gospel minister. If you're going to say anything about Luke, you need to say this man was a gospel minister. He wholeheartedly believed the words of Jesus to go and make disciples. He wasn't just an author. He wasn't just a physician. He was somebody that was committed to Christ and to his church and to bringing the gospel to the lost. That's why he stayed with Paul. The work that Paul was doing was the work that Luke was committed to. Jesus Christ had saved and redeemed Luke, and Luke wanted nothing more than for others to come to know and believe in Christ as well. In fact, when you come to the Gospel of Luke, we discover that the recipient of this book is a man by the name of Theophilus. Do you see that there in verse 1? He comes, or I should say, in, in verse 3, the author of the gospel of Luke is Luke, but the recipient of the gospel is this man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus is the one who received it, and he's known as most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know. Here's what's so interesting. We know virtually nothing about Theophilus. We know virtually nothing about him. He's just simply referred to as most excellent Theophilus. You know what that means? It means that at minimum, he was somebody that had high regard in society. He, he, was, he was somebody that was noteworthy. In, in later writings, we see that this title is given to, to Felix and Festus, those people who were governing officials. But what we don't understand is whether or not was Theophilus a believer or an unbeliever. We don't know. But I love that. It would make sense that it doesn't matter if this person was a believer or an unbeliever as the person whom, whom Luke was writing to because Luke is a gospel minister. If you're an unbeliever, then Luke's writing this book to you so that you can come to know Jesus Christ, Theophilus, as your Lord and Savior. If you are a believer, then Luke's writing this book to Theophilus so that he would be affirmed in Christ as his Lord and, and Savior. Luke was first and foremost a gospel minister, church. And it's here that as he's writing to Theophilus, and when you, that when you come back to verse one, you begin to understand a little bit of the purpose and the uniqueness of, of this book. I want, to, I want to talk to you about the uniqueness of what, what Paul does, or what Luke does here. Look at me with, at verse one. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Remember, he's writing this to Theophilus. As much as many have underwritten to compile a, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, he goes on to say, I'm, I'm writing this to you. And, and in this little introduction, we discover that Luke is acknowledging the fact to Theophilus, listen, there have been other people at this time who have made a record, a written record of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Luke's acknowledging it. Did you know that? Did you know that when, when Luke wrote this, there were other people who had written accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. 
Two that probably already existed were the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Some people said, well, were there even more than that? Maybe. There, there could have been, but they've been lost to history. And the reason they were lost to history is because the church from the beginning never viewed them as being a part of God's, God's word. Doesn't mean that they were necessarily in error, but they weren't included in God's word. Now, for those of you, just to, to acknowledge it, there are things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Barnabas. These are, these are false gospels. They record the events in Jesus' life, but everyone understands that they were written hundreds of years after the events that Luke records here. They weren't written within the time period that Luke was written and Matthew was written and John was written and Mark was written. In fact, do you notice that Luke says, listen, I'm not here to write my account to you, Theophilus, to, to undo what the others have said or to correct any errors in what they said. He, he even says, he says, listen, those records of Jesus' life that you have come to hear about, he says, they are based on eyewitness accounts. Do you see that there in the text? He says, the other people who have, who have written these things about Jesus, they, they come from eyewitness accounts. And he says, guess what? I too am using and compiling those eyewitness accounts to formulate what I am writing to you. Church, do you have any idea why that's so significant? You see, he's not downplaying those eyewitness accounts. Instead, he's writing, he says, Theophilus, if you're gonna understand anything about what I'm writing to you, as a record of the events of the life of Jesus, they're based on eyewitness accounts. Church, do you know how significant that is? Because in the ancient world, if you as a writer were wanting the hearers of what you had written, I did this like I was texting. Uh, <laughs> they would have used it like this. What you had written, wow, man, times change. If you wanted people to know what you had written, to know that it was fact and not fiction, history and not myth, you would do this at the start of your writing. You would say, I am writing these his this history based upon eyewitness accounts. Because the only way that you could know that something was true throughout history is if there were people who eyewitnessed it. That's how we've based all of our history. All of our history is based upon people who were there and who saw it. It wasn't until the advent just recently of the television and photograph that you could actually have, have pictures that, that clarified the veracity of, of something. If you wanted to know something was history back in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, all throughout basically all of human history, you would have to reference eyewitnesses. It, it gets my blood boiling and so I'm not going to try and respond in, in anger to, to this, but it gets my blood boiling when, when you have secular individuals and, you know, people who are claiming to be historians who say, you know what, we can't trust the accounts of the Gospels. You know, they're myth, they're fiction, they're made up. When a Gospel like Luke looks at you and looks at me and demands that you take it as history because he says in the beginning, I base this on eyewitness accounts. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, challenge me on this, challenge me on this. You will find time and time again, Luke, what does he do? Because he's a true historian. And he's saying these things are based on fact, not fiction. He references people. He references places. He references titles. He references geography. He goes out of his way to say, here's where it took place. Here's who it took place with. Why is he doing that? Why do the Gospels do that? Because they want you to know the veracity of it. He's coming, he's saying, challenge me. 
He does this crazy, we're gonna see this in just a few weeks. Jesus gets dedicated in the temple, right? He gets dedicated in the temple and he references two people, this man and this woman. I'm not gonna, we'll, I'll tell you their names later. He goes to the temple, he dedicates Jesus and these two people are there and you're like, I've always wondered, why does he mention these two people? They just pop up on the scene and then they're gone. The reason that he mentions their names is because he wants you to know it was real. And their experience around, these two people were around the temple so much that Luke's saying, listen, you can find people who know that those people were there and they'll tell you that they were there and they had these experiences. This that you have here is true. What we have here is, is true and it's to be read as, as such. And, and here's the thing, there's a uniqueness to Luke's gospel. There's a uniqueness to the gospel of Luke. It begins earlier than all the other gospels. Did you know that? When Luke says, listen, there are a lot of accounts out there. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not saying I disagree with them, but I'm, I'm saying that I want to give you an orderly account. Do you know why he says that I want to give you an orderly account? He's not saying that I'm going to give you the account chronologically. He's saying I want to give you the most comprehensive, the most thorough, the most logically sequenced account of the life of Jesus. And guess what you find? That's exactly what we have. Luke's account, it's not better than Matthew, Mark, or John. They just have different purposes. But when Luke says, I want to give you the most thorough account, he does. It starts earlier than any of the other Gospels. Matthew's account starts with the birth of Jesus. Mark and John basically start with the adult ministry of Jesus. <laughs> Luke says, I'm going to go back before Jesus' birth and tell you some stories about the events that took place before he was born because before Jesus was born, certain things happened. And people say certain things about Jesus in those stories. So that in chapters one through four, Luke lays the groundwork for us and says, here are all these things that people said about Jesus, what he would do and what he would accomplish. And then he takes the rest of the book, chapters five and following, and he shows how everything that people said before even his birth come to fruition in his life and his ministry. You're gonna see that. You're gonna see that. I'm gonna reference back to it. I'm gonna say, here's one of those statements about Jesus. Here's one of those things you need to pay attention to. It's gonna pay off later. And so it begins earlier than the rest. There's more content in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other Gospels. In fact, 40% of the Gospel of Luke is not found in the other Gospels. It doesn't mean that those Gospels were hiding something from us or that Luke had a better revelation. It's just trying to show us this more fuller, more comprehensive, this orderly account of Jesus' life. Here's a couple of little quick facts. There are seven miracles not included elsewhere that are found in Luke's Gospel. If we didn't have Luke's Gospel, there are seven miracles that you're going to read about here that we don't see elsewhere. We would miss out on those things if God did not have Luke do what he did. There are 19 parables in Luke's gospel that are not included elsewhere. So think about that. There is teaching that, that God wants for us, and it's like, why, was, why are four different gospels necessary? Because each one has a different purpose. Each one has a different aim. In fact, out of all those other gospels, here's one more unique thing about this gospel. It's Gentile-friendly. It's Gentile-friendly. Do you know what I mean by that? It, it means that, as we said, Luke was a Gentile, not a Jew. Yet Jesus, he ministers and he says things in a Jewish context that you or I, when we read it, we're like, I don't know why that's significant. Luke does his best to try and draw out the significance. In fact, Luke avoids using certain Aramaic or Hebraic phrases 
that would have been foreign to Greeks in his day or people that spoke the Greek language. He just simply omits them or he gives a different translation of those things because he wants to make us more clearly understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. Because church, that leads us to the purpose of this book. It leads us to the purpose. The uniqueness and the author, God orchestrated all of those things because there's a purpose behind this book. And it's so, so powerful. It's right there in verse four. Do you see it with me? He says, I've done this. I've compiled these things. I've taken account of the eyewitnesses. I have no idea how long it would have taken Luke to compile all of this and to organize it and to write it down. But he says, I did all of this for you, Theophilus. I did all this for you, followers of Jesus Christ. I did all this for you who don't know of Jesus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I've compiled all of this because I want you to know that the things you hear about Jesus are right and are true. I want you to know him for who he is and what he's done and what he said. You see, Luke goes out of his way to say, here's the purpose, here's the purpose for you, to make the life and work of Jesus Christ known so that we would have confidence in following him. You see, this book is for the believer and for the unbeliever. God's word comes to us and says, Jesus, he lived, he taught, he died, and he rose. And everything that we're gonna see in the book of Luke is to help to confirm for us those truths. It's there to help us truly know Jesus so that you would have certainty on the things you have been taught. Now listen, you and I, if you've grown up in the church or you've been around the church, there's certain things you've heard about Jesus. If you've never been to church, there's maybe things you've heard about Jesus. How do you know him? How do you know what he taught and what he believed? How can you have certainty and confidence in him? Luke says, because of what is recorded here. You and I, over the next season of time, will be able to go through the Gospel of Luke and be able to see, is that what Jesus really said? Is that what Jesus really taught? Man, I always thought it was this, but now I actually see that this is what Jesus was really about. You and I are gonna be able to throw aside those things that aren't of Jesus and that things that he really didn't say or do, and we're gonna be able to all the more embrace and fully know him. We're not gonna be like, like David Ortiz when it's all said and done. When we say we know the name of Jesus Christ, we're not just gonna say, oh no, I, I know Jesus Christ. We're gonna be able to say, I know Jesus Christ. I know what he taught. I know what he calls us to as his, his followers. You want to know what to believe about Jesus? You wanna know what he taught? Look no further than this book. You want to know whether or not Jesus is who he said he was and whether he's worth following him? Look to this book. You have doubts about Jesus? You have doubts about whether or not it's worth it to follow him? As we saw last week, like, is it worth it to follow him? Church family, when we spend time hearing from God's word, when we spend time listening to what Jesus has to say, we're gonna walk away and we're gonna say, it's worth it. Because as Peter said, you alone have the words of eternal life. 
And so my prayer for us is that if you are new to the faith, you will grow tremendously. If you've been around the faith for a long time, that God will refresh you with the words of Jesus. And if you do not yet know him, then you will be confronted and you will be called by Jesus to come and follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are blessed beyond measure because as we come into this place today, we are people who have your word. And because we have your word, we have knowledge of you. And because we have knowledge of you, we can have by your spirit, therefore, abundant life. And so as we go on this journey through this book, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have confidence all the more in who Christ is and what he accomplished, that it would give us boldness to follow him and to live for him, that you would refresh the hearts of your people as we just get to hear the words of Jesus over and over again, and that, Lord, if there's any that come to this place who do not know Jesus yet as Lord, as Savior, (laughs) that, Father, you would take your word and that you would draw them by your spirit to yourself. And so we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you've done through Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen and amen.